doctrinal trinity, we've looked at the deity of Christ, and then we started focusing on the, um, the gospel itself. So we looked at the atonement, and now we're looking at um, a topic called the kingdom of God. We've been looking at it, we saw it um, in our previous theology day, now we're coming to the second one. Very, very brief recap. If, you, if someone asked you what is the gospel, what is the gospel? Well, we normally have two definitions. I'll give the shorter one. The gospel is news, so the gospel is not so much um, how something affects you. The news would affect you in a certain way, but it's, in, it's news itself. It's an announcement of something. So the gospel is the good news that the incarnate, crucified, and risen Messiah, that's Jesus Christ, is now Lord and impending judge of the world. The incarnate, so he, was, he, he wasn't always a human, but at one point, the one who was eternal and divine put on humanity, and then he was crucified, he died. He didn't die of natural means, he was brutally murdered. But then he rose again, so he's the incarnate, crucified, and risen, and, but he had been Israel's promised Messiah. The incarnate, crucified, and risen Messiah that's Jesus Christ, is now Lord and the impending judge of the world. Now, if you think of that definition, it has three phases, really, where we are now. And it's how we think of the gospel. There are three phases. There's one in Jesus' first coming, where he died and he rose again. The second is that he is now in heaven and is reigning. And then the third is that he's coming. So he's Lord now, second phase. He's impending judge, that hasn't happened, third phase. But he is the cruci incarnate, crucified, and risen Messiah. That's first phase. Now, we looked at phase one, and we looked at phase three. So in the kingdom of God, we are trying to establish and look a little bit more at phase two, because phase two is where we are now. And so there's a lot more to say about it. And so we started looking at the kingdom of God. And last time, we went to establish what the kingdom is. I'll say, um, I'll recap on that to definition. But what is the kingdom? I'm, before we got there, we had to look at the kingdom through its anticipation in the Old Testament. What does it look like? And then we saw its fulfillment in the reign of Jesus Christ. And I said that because the kingdom of God, you get so many different thoughts on it. Um, sometimes first you start with the very deep people. Is it, the, is it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? Oh, no, they are two different things. No, they're not two different things. It's the same thing. Or... It's good to be a Christian. Once you become a Christian, that's good. But now you have to be a kingdom person because Paul gave us the gospel of grace, which makes us Christians. But Jesus taught about the gospel of the kingdom, which is something else entirely. Maybe it is having an impact in, in, uh, socially, or maybe it's having an impact in the governments. You know, you hear some people talk about the seven mountains of, um, uh, or seven mountains of influence that we... So those are kingdom people. We go into take those seven mountains of education, of business, of arts and culture, of um, who knows the others, of government, yeah, I said entertainment, arts and culture, that's it. Anyway, as Christians, we are saved. Yes, that's good, but we are brought to govern, and that's the gospel of the kingdom. Salvation is the one through the cross, but now all of those things is not handling the Bible very well. The gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace, are all of those things are all tied together. If you read Romans 1, verse 1 to 4, you will see that Paul says that Paul is servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for what? The gospel of God, okay? 
What gospel? Verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his holy prophets in the holy scriptures, so it's something that must have been anticipated in the scriptures, regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. So you start seeing the kingly aspect. His earthly life, he's, he's, he's tied to David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our what? Lord. So you see the gospel itself, and you see issues of kingdom here, all tied together. There are ways they're tied together. There are different aspects of how you look at it, but it's the same thing. So I don't want to spend too much time doing the recap. I want us to move in today because we want to now talk about how the kingdom works. How does the kingdom work? How does it operate today? We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit. I just hope that there will be not many people slain by the time I've finished. How many of us have been slain? I don't know. Be very careful. All right. So uh, give, let me give you a working definition of the kingdom of God really influenced by Romans 1.4. That, that is, the kingdom of God is the saving and the restorative rulership of God mediated through his chosen Messiah, Jesus Christ, which inaugurated through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension into heaven, awaiting its consummation and its return. Don't worry, it's recorded. But it's the saving and restorative Rulership of God mediated through his chosen Messiah, Jesus Christ, which he inaugurated through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and ascension into heaven, awaiting its consummation at his return. All right. Good for definitions. Let's get into some of the things we want to talk about today. Today, I want us to so talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, and you'll see why. Um, I hope we can cover everything. Normally, what we'll do is I'll, I'll teach for one hour, and then we'll have 30 minutes of questions, all right, or pushbacks. Now, if you go to the book of Acts, the book of Acts is, if you like, the early recorded history of the church. The church is birth, and now we are seeing many different things. But another thing you may not notice that is that the book of Acts is really a story of the advancement of the kingdom of God. The book of Acts is actually a story about the advancement of the kingdom of God. Why do I say that? Now, if you go to the very beginning of the book of Acts, because it's really a kingdom book, as I was, I'm trying to say, the beginning and the end, it's bookended by references to the kingdom of God. It's bookended by references to the kingdom of God. So, for instance, 1 verse 3 says, After his suffering, he presented himself, this is Jesus, he presented himself and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about what? The kingdom of God. That's verse 3. Go to verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, because finally we now understand all those funny things that you are saying. Finally, but we've been asking this question since now that you've done all of these things. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So it starts with that. By the time you get to the end of the book, the very last two verses of the book, Acts 28, 30 to 31, that's where the book of Acts ends, not Acts 29, the network that we're part of, anyways, let's leave that one. The very last two verses of the book of Acts, what do they say? For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without, inherit and, and without hindrance. So, 
on the one hand, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God just after he's resurrected, and it ends, the book of Acts, with Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God. What is happening? Now, if you go back to the beginning, I read 3 and 6. If we go to verses 4 and 5, chapter 1, you see there's a linkage. When Jesus is proclaiming, telling them about the kingdom of God, there's another occasion. He was eating with them, verse 4. He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you baptized with the Holy Spirit. Go to verse 7. He said to them, when they asked, will you not restore, when would you, are you now going to restore the kingdom to you? Then 7, he says, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and then finally where? The ends of the world, earth. Hmm, what's happening? We can see, first of all, that the verse about the kingdom, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom. The first time he proclaims the kingdom, he says you have to wait. Wait in Jerusalem time. They ask him, will you now restore the kingdom? He now says, it's not for you to know that, but you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So there's a tie of this kingdom and the Holy Spirit. And when we said Paul, for two years, lived there. Where's there? It's at the end of the book where he is in Rome. Now, Rome at that point was the seat of the empire. This is where the emperor stayed. So Rome, if you like, is the capital of the ends of the earth. Notice Jesus says, you will be my witnesses from where? Jerusalem, the very center, the epicenter of the Jewish religion, and now the birthing of the Christian one, because that's where Jesus died. And there you'll be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and if you can, if you trace it, actually in the book of Acts, you actually move to all these places. And then until someone is then proclaiming the gospel where there is meant to be a king who is not the true king, who is Caesar, because Jesus is Lord. He said he proclaimed about Jesus. So you then have this advancing that we are trying to say, how is it connected? Well, there's an issue here that is connected to the Holy Spirit. So if you want to understand the kingdom of God, especially the outworking of the kingdom of God, you have to understand who the Holy Spirit is or the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what I want us to do in this first part, where we're going to trace the Holy Spirit's promise through four Old Testament passages. By the time we do that, we'll get to two gospel passages and we'll come back to Acts. But four Old Testament passages to understand what was this anticipation. There's much discussion in the last 30 years, at least here in Nigeria, about what is the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, all of those things. Now, it's important for us to see the context that the Bible presents, and you can understand that by tracing this issue of the kingdom of God. So, first passage, Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, you have a scenario here. Israel, this multitude of people, God's own nation, promised through Abraham, have been delivered from Egypt. Now, God has given them the law in Exodus. He's expounded on that in the book of Leviticus. And Numbers is basically, apart from some other commandments he gives them, but Numbers is basically how they move from Sinai all the way to the promised land. And through that, they do, there's a lot of rebellion. So you have a lot of people. You have a stiff-necked people 
who are rebellious. And Moses is their leader who is taking them through. So at this point, Moses is fed up. I can't do it alone. I need some help. And so he cries out to God. God obliges and said, this is the way I'm going to help you, Moses. And this is how you will know the people I've chosen. Call out 70 elders for me from Israel. And to enable them to work in your stead and to help you, I will take the spirit that is on you and I will pour it out on them. Now understand, Moses is a prophet. He's the foundational prophet of all of the Old Testament. God promised Moses a lineage of prophets, just as he promised David a lineage of kings. So all the prophets have their source in Moses. So God says, for me to prove that these people are going to be the people that will lead, I will take out of that spirit and pour it on them. So what then happened was 68 of them came. Two of them stayed in the camp. God poured out the spirit on the 68. They all prophesied because it was the spirit from the prophet. They were prophesying, then they stopped. Oh, fine. But then there were two others that were prophesying in the camp, and Joshua is a zealous guy for Moses. You know, people, the people that follow you are always the ones that will be holding your own thing. I'm never amazed about how when supposedly two leaders have fought. They eventually make up, but their followers, they will be fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. So Joshua said, how can they? My Lord Moses forbid them. And then Moses uttered these very important words in Numbers 11, verse 29. Look at it. Numbers 11, verse 29. Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. There was a reality that in the people of God, the Old Testament, God was with them, but he only poured his spirit upon a few of them. And Moses is saying, Joshua, don't you get it? The desired goal would be that the spirit of God will rest upon all these people and they will be prophets. By him saying they will be prophets, it means that they will all have that spirit upon them. That was a wish that Moses had. Passage 1. Passage 2 is one of the minor... Now, I'm going through many of... like skipping so many different things. Well, passage 2 is Ezekiel 36, 25-27. The book of Ezekiel is set in the context of... Now, these children of Israel that Moses was leading, they get into the promised land but they don't obey God's law. Over a period of time, God warns them, warns them, warns them through prophets. They don't listen. Eventually, the people that were brought out of slavery to the promised land have gone back, exiled back into slavery. So now Ezekiel is a prophet that God is sending to them. He warned them a lot. They didn't hear. But now God is saying this. Ezekiel, I have not totally lost my people. I still have a plan for a people of God. But this time, this people of God, according to something I told your brother on the other side, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, I will make a new covenant with them. They kept on rebelling against me and they were idolatrous. So I will now make a new covenant with them. In that covenant, part of the benefits is this. They will not, well, let me say, the result will be that they will not just be living in their own way in rebellion. Why? Because I'm going to do certain things under this covenant. So Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I'll purify them. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you, benefit number one, a new heart. Well, the heart of stone that they had. And, and uh, number two, 
and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put what? My spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So I'm now going to write my laws upon your heart. But the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to change your heart. There's going to be a spiritual surgical operation on you. I am going to give you a new spirit. I'll revive you. But I will put my spirit in you. So Moses is wondering. He wants the spirit to be, I wish the spirit was poured out. Ezekiel's way of thinking about it is not just pouring out, but that the spirit will be in. Different metaphorical ways of looking at it. Under a new covenant. Third passage. And that's in the book of Joel. Now Joel comes before Ezekiel. Joel, God sends to this time, they are still in their land, but they, their cup is getting full. These people, as they're sinning, their cup is getting full. And God then says, I'm going to do three things to judge these people. I'm going to bring famine on you. I'm going to bring locusts to eat all of your plants and all of your, your crops. And then after that, I will then send an army who shall not break ranks. I will send this ferocious army coming from Babylon, and they will come and judge you. And so the very first chapter of Joel and the first part of chapter 2 deal with that. But then later, as you get to verses, I think, 18 to 27, God now says, but if you repent, in fact, you will repent, you will return, and I'm going to restore you. And then when you get to verse 28, he speaks a little bit more detail about what this restoration will involve. Joel 2, verse 28. And afterward, that is, as I'm restoring you, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both women, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Do you notice the all there? And this daughters, sons, old Men, servants. In other words, God is saying, maybe according to Moses' wish, I will now pour out my spirit upon all of my people indiscriminately. This restoration is not going to be like any other kind of restoration. I will pour out my spirit. So Moses wishes for the pouring out of his spirit upon all of God's people. Ezekiel says that for those people to behave in a way that will not be rebellious, God has to put his spirit in them. And Joel says it will happen. But there's one more. In the book of Isaiah, it's two passages I'm putting together. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah also anticipates 100 years before the exile, he speaks about that, but he speaks well beyond the exile. And he talks about the restoring of Israel, part of it was that Israel will eventually be restored by this suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53 that was bruised. But eventually, but first of all, in Isaiah 11, it speaks about a new age, what they call the Messianic age. And the Messianic age is brought about by a Messiah. This Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 will have the spirit rest on him. But he will be of the lineage of David. Why? Because he is going to come out of Jesse's root. Jesse is David's father, all right? Follow me. So he's going to have the spirit rest on him. And in Isaiah 61, he repeats the same thing, that he would have that spirit rest on him, and he's going to do certain things. So Isaiah 11, 1, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Verse 2, 
the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit, now Isaiah 61 verse 1, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. So look up now, because we are now we're going into the New Testament. But what do we have in the Old? There is this promise, the other pieces, Isaiah 32 verse 15, Isaiah 44 verse 3, the promise of the Spirit being poured out is, it's, is littered all over the place. But here is what it means. God's people have been rebellious hitherto. And God has made certain promises to Abraham that his people are going to bless the whole world. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. And God is saying, for this thing to happen, I will pour out my spirit upon all of my people. But this is going to come as a result of a Messiah who also would have that spirit rest on him. So how are the people going to receive the spirit when the Messiah himself also has the spirit? Is there a coming together of the Messiah who has the spirit upon him and also the people who are anticipating the outpouring of the Spirit. Well, there is. Every single gospel, the four of them, quote a particular thing in their beginning. But I'm only going to read from the book of John. But you can find this. The coming together of these two things. John chapter 1, verse 32, says this. Now, speaking, the person that is speaking is John the Baptist. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and did what? Remained on him. John finally saw someone whom the Spirit, because he's a prophet, the greatest of all prophets, not because he did any miracles or anything. He was the greatest of all prophets because of his positioning. He saw, Isaiah saw pictures. John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God. So he said, I saw the Spirit rest on him. Oh, okay, so we know that Isaiah 61, Isaiah, Isaiah 11, hmm, but he says something else. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me, okay. Mannequin challenge, good. But the one who sent me to baptize with water, now this baptism thing, you didn't see the word baptism in the Old Testament, but basically in the period between the Old and the New, and really with influence from the Old, baptism was a kind of washing. I am leaving my father's home, I am leaving this religion, and I need some kind of thing to show my purification into this new place. So I go through baptism. I go through water and cleansing. So John was baptizing people, Jews, scandalously, Saying, you know, the people are meant to be the people of God and he's baptizing them and saying there's a new age that is coming. There's a new age that is coming. But it's not going to be with me. But there's a new age that is coming. And so he says, the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, the pouring out of the, of the Spirit upon God's people and the one, the Messiah, who would have the Spirit on, rest upon him, is brought together. The Messiah himself is the one who will pour out his Spirit. Now, it says baptizing in the Spirit. But it's taking the metaphor that now we understand John has taken from others and he's inculcated in his own ministry that is like being poured into something. So, the pouring out of the Spirit that we could read from the others, 
And the spirit given, which I'll show you, also within, is still the same thing as the baptism of the spirit. Now, John tells us further about this in John chapter 7, when he quotes Jesus. At this point, it's John the Baptist, I say. But John quotes Jesus in John chapter 7. Jesus has gone to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. He first goes in. He first does as though he's not going, but later he comes. And then he starts to announce that anyone who is thirsty, they should come and drink from him. And he quotes, why? Because there's a promise of the scripture that is there. I tie to it, verse 38, 7, John 7. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. They're like, what is going on? What's that? What's all this water, water, water? I know, you know, like nowadays, every song about, um, in Christianity, there's always water, oceans rise, you know, this, the, there's a river that is flowing. You know, we're all into water. We love getting wet, 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 wet. And it seems like Jesus is the one that started this wet, wet, wet thing. So, like, what do we, what do, we do with it? Do you want to just swim in Jesus? I don't know. But he explains to us. John gives a little commentary. And he says this. By this he meant what? The Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were later to what? Receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been what? Glorified. Now, notice what it says there. We now know that this Jesus, whom John the Baptist has actually identified, is going to be the one that's going to pour out the Spirit, right? He's going to be the baptizer of the Spirit. But who is he going to pour it out onto? Who is he going to give the Spirit? Those who what? Does this sound like those who will potentially believe? Does this sound like those who believe but then potentially seek him so that it is potentially to all but not to everyone? Or he says, all those who believe, because part of the messianic age, part of what the Messiah will do is that when you believe in him, the spirit will be poured out. We'll say a little bit more. So now we are back to Acts. Acts chapter 1. If you notice there, Jesus tells them, they should wait. Wait because the Spirit is coming. So when he, in verse 4, says the promise, wait for the promise of my Father, you can see all of these scriptures from the Old Testament coming. And then he promises them, although you are asking for the kingdom, wait until you are baptized in the Spirit because he is the one who is going to baptize in the Spirit. So all of this now culminates in Acts chapter 2. This is the history of what's going on in Acts chapter 2. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. Verses 1 to 4 tells us there's something dramatic there. I don't think it's repeated anywhere else again. But the people were now waiting. They were in Jerusalem. These were the believers at the time. About 120 of them, they were praying. And all of a sudden, there was a rushing mighty wind. The whole place was shaking. And then... Something happened, like cloven fire, uh, tongues of fire upon their heads, and then the people, it said, they were filled with the Spirit, and then they were spoken tongues. That filled with the Spirit, I don't know whether we'll get into it today, but take note of it. They were filled with the Spirit, and that activated them speaking in tongues. So this thing is a phenomenon people don't understand. They all came for a festival. 
around at that time because it was the time of Passover. So many people are coming in from all around the diaspora, Jews from all around the diaspora. So it's not just people who speak Hebrews. It is Jews, proselyte Jews, who speak all different languages. And so some of the people are asking for an explanation. And some of them are even filled with wonder because, like, I can hear my language with these people speaking. Some people said they were drunk. And so Peter decides to now give an explanation for the phenomena that is happening. What does Peter do when he wants to start? You know what he does? He takes us back to the book of Joel. And he says, these tongues that you are seeing these people speaking, now understand this is the fulfillment of prophecy. What Moses had wished for in Numbers chapter 11, what Ezekiel had started to prophesy, and Joel was saying, Peter was saying, this day it is now fulfilled in your hearing. But he goes further. Why is this thing happening? Because it's one thing to then say, well, Joel had prophesied that God is going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy and all that. But why? What is the triggering event that has made this happen? And the triggering event that has made this happen, look at, let your eyes run down to verse 31. Verse 31, Acts 2.31. Seeing what was to come, he spoke, he's talking about David, Psalm 16. He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Now, he's talking about the spirit, and he's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, proven from the scripture. But notice verse 33 after. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. David, uh, Joel said, when will this outpouring of the Spirit happen? It's going to happen in the last days. In other words, there were days before the last day. So what uh, uh, Peter is explaining is that a new era has started. But what is the new era that has started? Well, he explains that it is as a result of this crucified Messiah that is risen, but has now ascended into heaven. He's pouring out the Spirit from heaven. In other words, the coronation of Jesus in heaven was the triggering effect for the outpouring of the Spirit on earth. I'll say that again. The coronation of Jesus in heaven is the triggering effect for the outpouring of the Spirit on earth. When Jesus was coronated in heaven and the Spirit was poured out on earth, the kingdom of God has started. In other words, you cannot talk about the oppression or the pouring out of the Holy Spirit without talking about the kingdom of God. Jesus came and spoke about the dawning of the kingdom. He showed the kingdom in the many things he did, but he finally sowed the seeds of the kingdom by his death, now rose to show what the, new, the people of the new kingdom will look like, but for the kingdom to now be in operation in different people, Jesus had to live and send another just like him. Not one that will be physical like him and that will be limited by space, but now can be in the hearts of all his people. And this is what was being spoken about in Acts 1. 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. In other words, let me put it in another way. A more, provoking, a more provocative way. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not baptized in the Holy Spirit. Get me. It is not that I, I am a Christian. If I ask for the Holy Spirit, baptized by the Holy Spirit, I will get it so that the Holy Spirit is potentially, every Christian can be potentially baptized in the Holy Spirit, but not all are. No. If you understand everything that has been going on, remember what it says. You cannot partake of the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God or partake of the kingdom of God except you are what? Born again. But the another way he speaks about being born again is what? Born by water and the spirit. To enter into the kingdom is to be what? Born again. You are born again into the kingdom and it's on account of that that you receive the spirit. You don't believe that? Okay, we're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Go down to verse two, um, chapter 2. Go down. Now, Peter is now preaching. Verse 37, he says, when the people, after he's finished his preaching, when the people heard this, when they heard all that was said, they said, what shall we do? They were caught to the heart uh, and said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Listen to Peter's reply. Because now they are getting convicted about their sin. What was the occasion that brought about Peter's preaching? The baptism of the Spirit, isn't it? That was the occasion that brought about Peter's preaching. He's preached. They are convicted. They say, what do we do? And then listen to what Peter says. Repent. Be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And then tarry just as we did and maybe. He says, no. And you will what? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's why when you get to Galatians chapter 3, when Paul is trying to talk about the link of the gospel to the blessing of Abraham, he then says this. In Galatians 3, he's traced so many things, but he says, listen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, curse is everyone who is hung on a pole. We understand that. How do we get hooked to, uh, to Christ's atoning death, right? Is it not through faith, right? So, Paul says in verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promised spirit. This is why Paul can say very clearly in Romans 8 verse 9, if you do not have the spirit of God, of Christ, you are not belonging to Christ. And that's why later, Concerning the church, he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, for we all have been baptized by one spirit into one body. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a second work of grace. The work of grace encompasses your union with Christ by faith, one kind of union, but that union with Christ is then further exemplified or given existential reality by the Spirit coming in you. Let me put it this way. You see this. When I got married to this woman, when I got married to this woman, we made vows before all people. But when you see me outside, you don't see her. 
The most, uh, maybe you are an attractive young woman and you find me very attractive, which I expect you to be. <laughs> and you see this guy and be like, man, see how tall he is. Very good looking, well chiseled, flat stomach, eight packs. I'm like, I'm wondering whether I should make a move. And then I just like, and I just come and I do like this. What do you do? Well, if you're if you're a woman of virtue, you will then look away. I know not all women will look away. I know some people, but you will look away. Why? You say somebody owns him. The spirit of God is God's ring upon you that He owns you. Amen. That's why it says. We have received the Spirit as a seal until the day of the purchased possession. Jesus' mode of oppression and reign when he ascended into heaven is to pour out his Spirit upon all believers. Now let me say this, I don't think we'll treat it today, but let me say this. The baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit are two different things, but they are connected. Don't equate them. The baptism of the Spirit is a one-time event. The filling of the Spirit is continuous. Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 18, continually be filled with the Spirit. You look, the, the, the apostles here were filled in the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. You go to Acts chapter 4, they were filled with the Spirit again. The filling of the Spirit provokes a particular reaction on account of the fact that the Spirit lives in you. You can't be filled with the Spirit if you are not baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit lives in you, baptism. He's in you, and on account of that, he can fill you. You can ask me questions about that later. So, you see the, 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 we see the connection between the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit, right? So now, I won't say this. They ask them to, Peter asked them to repent, they'll receive the Spirit. But if you now go to the end of Acts chapter 2, they gave their lives in Acts 2.41. 42 to 47, you now see a community. Right? You know that community, that word, that they broke bread with one another. They sat on the apostles' teaching. Nobody had anything like, this was a new community. What am I saying? The Holy Spirit didn't just come into individuals. The Holy Spirit brought about a new reality of a community. It is called the church. So the outpouring of the Spirit was God's signet on each individual person that believed in Christ, but also the birthing of the new people of God. It was a signal to the end of all the prophecies that Jesus said before he went to the cross, that, look, Israel, you have not produced any fruit as a fig tree. Now the, the, um, uh, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to another nation that will be able to produce the fruit thereof. Jesus sacked this, the Israel because Israel, um, the fulfillment was now coming. And now, by pointing out his spirit upon a new people, he said, the people of God, the fulfillment of the people of God have come. Not one where some of the people had the spirit poured out on them, but now all the Lord's people are prophets. That's why he says, and they poured out the spirit upon them, they, they spoke in, uh, they prophesied. Not to now say that all of them have the gift of prophecy, but in the sense that all of them now have the Spirit in them and He can work through them. Which leads me to our next part, which is the Spirit and the Kingdom of God and the Church. So we've spoken about the Kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit, the Kingdom of God and the Church. I am aware that we have very little time, but let's keep going and I think we should be able to finish. Now, 
Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, everywhere you see the spirit work in a redemptive way, the kingdom of God has come. He said, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. At an individual level, at an individual level, it means that we surrender our lives to Christ in repentance and faith in his atoning work. Then we are given new life in the spirit. If any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creature. What is that new creature? It's not just the fact that you are transferred from, first of all, it says that when you are in Christ, you are now taken from the kingdom of what? Darkness into the kingdom of his light or the kingdom of his dear son. You are transferred. There's one. That's by faith. But John tells us in John 3, 3 and John 3, 5 that you are born again. John's language for being born again is Paul's language for being new creation. You are born again, not after the flesh, not after the will of man, not after, you know, but you are now born of God. That's John's own language. But Paul's own is that you have experienced a spiritual resurrection. You have entered into the new world, just as Jesus, our forerunner, who resurrected, has entered the new world. That's why he's called the firstborn among the dead. You've experienced the spiritual resurrection. And therefore, the kingdom of God is now working in you. But, as we said, the kingdom of God brings new life into individual members, but the kingdom of God creates a whole new community. Now, that new community is the new people. 1 Peter 2 tells us about those new people. They're a holy nation. They're a royal, royal priesthood. And Paul says that by born spirit have we been baptized into one body. Now, how does the kingdom of God operate in this body. Two ways. He operates the spirit, he operates the, the kingdom of God is in operation by his spirit through and within this body. This new body that the kingdom, the kingdom's rule has now created, he operates in them through them and within them. What do I mean by through them? The kingdom's op operation through them, through the body is seen when the spirit spreads the kingdom as the church witnesses the word about the kingdom to the world. When you receive, when you are baptized in the Spirit and you receive the Spirit, what will happen? You will be my witnesses. So when you are the witness, when you witness to Christ and you preach the word about the kingdom, the kingdom spreads. The kingdom gains territory. When you witness to the crucified and risen Messiah and someone responds to it by faith, guess what? That person has entered into the kingdom. The kingdom is growing because Jesus said the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It is the smallest of all seeds, but eventually, what? It begins to grow and it becomes a large tree, the largest of all trees. Daniel 2, they saw the prophecy. One small stone knocked down the image and the stone started to grow and grow and grow. And that's why if you go to the book of Acts, the, 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 the book of Acts has certain segments where things are turning. And each time it's talking about the spread of the word for you to see that the kingdom is advancing. So in Acts 6-7, you have this. So the word of God spread. The number of, this is in Jerusalem. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Jerusalem and then the Judean uh, region. Then Acts 9-31. Then the church through Judea because now it has spread from Jerusalem to Judea. Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord 
and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it's increased in numbers. The kingdom is advancing. Then you get to Acts 12, verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread. This is after um, James had been uh, slaughtered by Herod, but Herod himself has now been killed. The word of the Lord spread. And then you have in Acts 19, verse 20, Paul in Ephesus, in this way, the word of the Lord spread wildly and grew in power until Paul gets to Rome. So when we talk about evangelism and we talk about mission, the kingdom of God is not spreading. No, evangelism is how is grace. And that's one thing. But the kingdom is going to spread through our certain actions. No, don't miss it. The kingdom spreads through word about the kingdom. Who is the main person in the kingdom? The crucified and risen Messiah who is Lord. When someone surrenders their life to Jesus Christ and puts their repentance and faith in him, the kingdom is spreading. So, the kingdom, the spirit works through the church to spread. Our missional impulse is to spread. But the, but the spirit also works within the body to show the kingdom of God. He expresses the kingdom of God within the body. Romans 14 verse 17. The kingdom of God is not meat in meat and drink, but it's in what? Righteousness. Peace and joy in what? The Holy Spirit. In other words, when we are talking about the kingdom of God's rule and reign in the church, we are talking about his ability to mature us through the use of to mature us through the use of our gifts. Maturing us in good character through the use of our gifts. Why? Because this spirit is now given to us. He's not just our seal. He's not just the one that brings us into community. But the gifts of the, the spirit gives us gifts with maturing character so that we can serve one another. So when the Holy Spirit is in you, we now talk about the fruit of the spirit, character. But we talk about the gifts of the spirit, service. And when these things are done properly, the kingdom of God is maturing in our lives. Remember, it is one God that is working this salvation out. This is why one God, that Father, Son, and Spirit. This is why in 1 Corinthians 12, you can see this. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, Jesus Christ. There are different kinds of working. But in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God that is at work. You see, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, it's all about that. It's partly Paul readdressing, setting the theological foundations. You see, the, the problem is there's division in the church. People are using the gifts in another way. And Paul then shows them again what the kingdom of God is like, why the Holy Spirit is given. Why love in 1 Corinthians 13 and the body that he has described, the many-membered body brought together will solve the problem of people thinking that tongues are better than prophecy. It's all about the kingdom. So think about it when he's talking about us in the church. He's talking about how is your new man coming out. It's not just the fact that you can sing. It's not just the fact that you can preach. But what if you are getting unnecessarily angry? Put off the old man. 
Because the old man belongs to the other kingdom. The new man belongs to the new kingdom. How does the new man come about when you have the spirit in you? Part of the characters of the spirit we see in Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We see in Galatians chapter 5, that whole discussion of the fruit of the spirit. Or we see in Ephesians 5 to 6, when the spirit, remember how does Ephesians 5, 18 start? Continually be filled with the spirit. By the time you get to Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, you are talking about marriage. By the time you get to Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, you are talking about parenting. By the time you get to Ephesians 6, 5 to 9, you are talking about how you live your life and work. This is when the people with the spirit, the citizens of the kingdom, take the kingdom character out into the world. There's a clash of kingdoms now because the kingdom has its culmination, 1 Corinthians 15. And when all the passages about you will not inherit the kingdom, he's talking about the kingdom in its future. But now we are already in the kingdom, and the kingdom of darkness, all the enemies of Christ, the other kingdom, have not been fully brought under his feet. So now the citizens of this kingdom are also out in the world where the citizens of the kingdom of darkness are also there. And it's saying, not only do you preach about the kingdom, talk about the kingdom, but does the kingdom's lifestyle manifest in your life? That's part of the witness of the people of God. So it has a missional dimension, the spirit working through the church to spread the kingdom. But it has a communal dimension, the spirit working in the church, showing the kingdom lifestyle, which is character that is then worked out in the service of the gifts one to another. As a, on a final note, what does this say about the gifts? What does this say about the cessation of gifts? Has this gift come in? Is this gift, well, these are supernatural gifts, but these are the ordinary gifts, the supernatural gifts have ceased. If you understand what I've done, everything I've said, if it is of the kingdom, if all these gifts are of the kingdom, then there is no such thing as an ordinary gift because all gifts are brought by what? Who? The Spirit. So it's all supernatural. Have you been given the gift of help? It's a supernatural gift. Have you been given the gift of mercy? It's a supernatural gift. Have you been given the gift of prophecy? It's a supernatural gift. Have you been given the gift of tongues? It's a supernatural gift. But the Spirit distributes these gifts as He wants. He doesn't give everybody the same. The dawning of the kingdom as of today and the gifts that we offer, the miracles sometimes that we do, is God saying that kingdom that Christ will fully establish on the earth, sometimes I love it when it breaks into this world. And so like Jesus Christ cast out demons from people and the kingdom of God has come, as Jesus Christ healed people and the kingdom of God has come, we also, the church, does it sometimes. Not all. I would end there. So, what is, in summary, if I have to say, what is the kingdom of God in operation? The kingdom of God in operation is the active, salvific work of the Holy Spirit in witnessing to the crucified and resurrected Messiah and Lord Jesus Christ as he works through the church to spread the frontiers of the kingdom and he works within the church to deepen and mature it to reflect the kingdom even more. Don't worry, I wasn't expecting you to write it down. All right, let us pray.